morning, everyone, and to you at home. What does it mean to be well? The health and wellness industry is apparently worth over a trillion pounds. It's growing twice as fast as the global economy. And self-care products generate about 5% of the global economic output. The UK has the fourth largest market size in terms of the health and wealth industry behind that of the US, China, and Australia. And the industry has continued to grow through COVID as people turn to new fitness regimes, wearable devices, and smart clothes that help us to exercise and sleep better, mind management tools, yoga classes, clean eating programs, and beauty and anti-aging products. Pre-COVID, wellness tourism represented about 17% of all worldwide tourism. And we'll soon return to our gyms and our health spas with their specialized therapeutic waters and our lounging around clothes will be replaced if they haven't been already with active wear. Of course, everyone knows that the health and wellness industry is populated with fads and scams and conflicting information. But the reason it's such a wealthy industry is because much of it works. It should be no surprise to us that doing healthy things is good for you. Better nutrition generally leads to better health. Exercise generally is good for mind and body. Better rest and sleep generally reduces stress and high blood pressure. But again, what does it mean to be well? What constitutes wellness? We talk about wellness in many different ways, using physical, emotional, and spiritual terms. And there are so many things that lead us to some kind of wellness, wellness diets, wellness products, and wellness rules and life lessons. But at its core, what does it mean to be well, to truly know wellness? And is it even possible to find? Can it be gained? And if so, where? Can it be lost? Is it possible to be well and yet to remain in suffering? To the man in our passage today, Jesus asks this question. Do you want to get well? And the surprising reality, I hope we'll all find, is that Jesus asks that same question to every reader and hearer of this text too. Not because he promises conditions in the same way as that man, rather because wellness is more than simply physical healing, uh, which the man experienced. So if you want to know what true human wellness is and where to find it, then look at and listen closely to Jesus this morning. And there are three headlines um, to hold on to, each centered around the work of Jesus. First, the work of Jesus is to make people whole. 
The man had been an invalid for 38 years, um, unable to move himself throughout that whole time. That's longer than some people um, were, remained alive in those days. And together with many other disabled people, he found that uh, laying under the covered arches near the sheep pool was a, a, was a place of refuge. Um, it was something like a, court, a portico or a bathhouse. And it seems that many believed that the waters had special healing properties. And so when the waters bubbled up, they'd get themselves into the pool, well, if they could. It's not mentioned why Jesus went there. It's quite revealing that he does. His first recorded visit um, after entering into Jerusalem for one of the biggest festivals is this place where all the sick and the vulnerable people are. It's a bit like a royal or a dignitary coming for a, a big occasion in London, a state visit or a state occasion like the Trooping of the Color via St. Mungo's homeless shelter. That's where Jesus wants to go. As he arrives at this pool in verse 6, Jesus sees the man. He notices him. He looks at him. I dread to think how many people I've simply walked past sleeping on the streets of London without even noticing. But Jesus sees him. Jesus learns about the man. He takes an interest in him. He demonstrates concern for him. And then Jesus approaches the man and speaks to him. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to get well? The helpless man didn't notice Jesus. He didn't approach him. He couldn't. He didn't cry out to him. He didn't even know anything about Jesus, it seems. And yet Jesus comes to him. What does that tell you about Jesus? The question seems a bit odd, though. Do you want to be made well? Well, the reason the man is lying there in the first place, of all places, is because he wants to be made well, but he's unable to help himself. So in answer to Jesus' question, the man says in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. The man does what we all do. He states the obvious. It's understandable that he restricts what he thinks is possible for all the tangible reasons in front of him. He literally can't move himself. And despite there being loads of people around him, no one seems willing to help him. He feels helpless and alone. And so he doesn't think change is possible. For him, Jesus is just another passerby. What irony that he thinks no one can help him when the one who can is now standing in front of him. So why does Jesus ask that question? To tell him off for not working hard enough to get into the pool? To suggest he's lacking in faith in some way to be made well? To encourage positive thinking? to tease him, or even to take advantage of him. Well, it's for none of those reasons. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Because that's exactly what Jesus has come to do.
entrance into the world. We see it in infighting in families, evil regimes, abuse, people getting away with things they've done wrong, bullying in the playground, greed, to name just a few. However, the fall also brought corruption and abnormality into creation. For instance, we experience sickness, disease, and death. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that creation is subjected to those things because of sin's entrance into the world. Sin is a rejection of, of our good creator, and as a result, the whole order of creation is frustrated. Now, whether the man's condition in our passage was caused through his own sin and abuse of his body, or he was simply born that way, we don't know. But either way, Jesus makes the connection between sin and our brokenness. To go on sinning, i.e. to go on disbelieving God and rejecting him and his ways, is to invite further damage on ourselves. Sin is never liberating. However appealing or relieving it seems, the solution is never found in sin. To choose sin, which includes substituting goods for our good God, is to choose unwellness. It dehumanizes us. It makes us less than whole. And ultimately, that sin and rejection of God invites God's judgment on us, which I think is what Jesus means when he says something worse may happen to you. So Jesus' command against sin is for our benefit, not our punishment. The command is itself a gift because the alternative to sin is a healed and restored relationship with God. It's wholeness. So that's true wellness. Wellness is more than the ability to bound up on your feet or to live a pain-free existence. Though, of course, the man's healing is a wonderful anticipation of that resurrection reality that Jesus will bring in, where all distortions will be renewed and restored. To be well is to know the grace and the goodness of God, to experience the look, the focus, and the care of Christ, to receive his words spoken to you, to know that the sin that has weighed you down has been lifted off your shoulders and carried to the cross by Christ. It's to experience the rebuilding and reordering of our image. That wellness from Jesus gives a far better and stronger bedrock to see the world. It brings security and comfort and even joy when there's decay and death around us. So Christian brothers and sisters, whether you are disabled or ill, alone or in mourning, if you feel physically, mentally, spiritually even broken, you can still know wellness in Christ. His goodness comes to us as we are cared for and spoken to by him. He continues to work in lifting you up and bringing you to God. 
He's your brother, your mediator, your savior, in whose life and relationship with the Father you can enjoy and participate in even right now. And of course, you and I will experience the fullness of that reality in the resurrection. And so wellness is not a property to attain. Wellness is personal. The good is Jesus himself. Now, I've asked her if I can say this, but some of you will now know that Nellie's brother in Kenya sadly and unexpectedly died a couple of weeks ago. And he leaves behind a, a wife and a young child. And it's obviously been a very terrible time of grief for Nellie, and especially because she was unable to travel home for the burial. And as we've been speaking to and trying to support Nellie, one of the remarkable things that she's repeatedly said is the phrase, it is well, from that hymn by Horatio Spafford. To some ears, that might seem like a really strange and unexpected thing to say, it is well, in the midst of tragedy and grief. But it's not strange for Nellie. It's not strange for the Christian. In fact, what it beautifully displays is Christ's work and care of Nellie and her heart and her life, even in times of trouble. She's a demonstration that wellness in Christ can coexist with suffering. It is well. It is well with my soul. The work of Jesus is to bring us to God. Finally, the work of Jesus is the work of God. I hope many of you, like me, are enjoying season six of Line of Duty, uh, the police drama on the BBC. Don't worry, there'll be no spoilers here. It's just that this passage really reminds me of an episode of Line of Duty. It's got twists and surprising revelations, apparent law-breaking, the badgering of witnesses, a missing man, and even in some way, bent coppers. That was a terrible Northern Irish accent. <laughs> the, the surprising revelation comes in verse 9. After the miracle, Jesus adds in the note, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. There's, that's no minor detail. It's hugely controversial. It's a bit of a bombshell. You see, the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a good principle given in creation for people to lay down their work, just as God rested from all his work on the seventh day. For the Jewish leaders, the healed man was violating the Sabbath. So figuratively speaking, they put him into the interrogation room. Document three in your folders, I can imagine them saying. Document three clearly shows you carrying your mat on the Sabbath. According to the Sabbath laws, it is forbidden to carry any burdens on the Sabbath, anything that could be considered work. How do you account for that? But after questioning him, they don't get much. The healed man effectively says, like DCI buckles in line of duty, I don't know what I don't know. Eventually, in verse 15, they find out who it was that healed the man. And they're indignant that someone should so brazenly violate what they consider the letter of the law. 
And so Jesus himself is brought in for questioning. And that's where we get the episode cliffhanger in verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Not only does Jesus admit to the healing on the Sabbath, but he also claims that he has the right to do it. For his work is inseparable from God's work. Just as the father continues to work until now, preserving the question, even as he said to rest on the seventh day after creation, so the son continues to work. In other words, in Christ, we see God himself at work in this healed man. The son operates with the same creative power as the father. Just as the word spoke into creation, so Christ speaks to this man and the man is restored. Like the lame deer in our passage from Isaiah 53, leaping up at the sound of the creator's voice. The son operates with the same authority as the father, commanding the man not to sin and relating to the Sabbath in the same way as the father. The son's work in the world is the overflow of the same will as the father. In fact, the son's mission, his sending into the world, is the work of the inseparable trinity. The son works all things together with the father because the Son is of the same nature as the Father. He is eternally from him. The work of Jesus is the work of God. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, it, it means that Jesus truly has the power, authority, and will to make us whole. We'll never find wellness if we continue to look for it in the ways that we're kind of, are kind of divorced from him. Even if you follow all the best wellness practices there are out there, you'll never discover what it means to be well in the true sense of wholeness and life in Christ in which we are restored to our good creator and triune God, the fountain of all goodness. The glimpses we see of wellness in the world all of those good experiences can and should be enjoyed and embraced, but not as our equivalent of the Bethesda pool. They are simply goods that overflow from the fountain of goodness and the source of wellness. So do you want to get well? Do you want to be made well? Well, it is the work of Jesus that makes you whole. It is the work of Jesus to bring you to God because the work of Jesus is the work of our good and glorious God. Amen. Just as we close, I thought I'd um, pray a prayer from, from this book. It's called Every Moment Holy, and it's, it's a wonderful um, book which you can, um, I can tell you more about another time, but it, it contains liturgies and prayers for everyday life. I'm going to read a prayer called um, A Liturgy for the Feeling of Infirmities. 
We were not made for mortality, but for immortality. Our souls are ever in their prime. And so the faltering of our physical bodies repeatedly takes us by surprise. The aches, the frailties, the injuries, the impositions of vexing disease and worsening condition are unwelcome evidences of our long exile from the garden. Even so, may the inescapable decline of our bodies here not be wasted. May it do its tutoring work, inclining our hearts and souls even more vigorously toward your coming kingdom, O God. While we rightly pray for healing and relief, and sometimes receive the respite of such blessings. Give us also patience for the enduring of what, whatever hardships our journeys entail. For what we endure here is the deterioration of bone and joint, blood and marrow, muscle and ligament, vitality and mobility and clarity is but our own, um, on our own small share of the malady common to a frail creation, yet yearning, for a promised restoration. Give us humility, therefore, in our infirmities, to ask and to receive, day by day, your mercies as our needs require. Where our dependence on others increases, let us receive their service as a grace rather than a shame. Let us trace in the hands of our caregivers the greater movement of your own hands, for you ever meet us and uphold us in our weakness. And in those moments when our bodies betray our trust, work in us by our own hard experience a more active and Christ-like compassion for the suffering of others. Give us also a sense of humor to wink at our weaknesses now, knowing that they are but the evidences of a perishable body that will at your beckoning rise again imperishable, and that the greater joke is the one played upon death. By the inevitable dwindling of our strength, may the metal of our true hope at last be proved, rising as the memory of a song stirring deep in the bones, a martial melody of which our difficulties are but the approaching drumbeat, reminding us that this flesh and blood are soon to be transformed, redeemed, remade. The infirmities we incur today are but the expected buffetings of a battle at which victorious end our birthright will forever be reclaimed. So may the decline of our bodies incline our hearts and souls ever more vigorously toward your coming kingdom, O God, ever more vigorously. Amen. <laughs>